Well, if you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Zechariah. If you're using one of our hardback Bibles there, it's page 745. Zechariah, it's one of the last books in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and this morning, we're starting a series through that book. So Pastor Tim and Mark will continue to, uh, to tag team 1 Samuel as they move through that book. And then the Sundays where I preach, we'll be going through the book of, of Zechariah. Uh, there's an outline on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to see those main points as, as we move along. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to recreate a scenario or a moment. So maybe you, maybe you had a, a, a memory where you got together with a special group of friends or some segment of your family. Maybe it was a holiday and you did something and it was just great. And maybe it wasn't even planned, but you just loved it. And then for days and months and years, you looked back on that time and the people that were involved in it would talk about how great it was. And then maybe you thought, you know what, we can try to get those people back together in that same place and do this thing. And I bet we can kind of recreate that great thing. And if you've tried that, you know, oftentimes it doesn't work that way. Even if you've got the same group of people, same place, doing the same thing, it's just not the same. Well, that's kind of what Israel is experiencing when Zechariah is prophesying to them. They're coming out of exile. We're going to talk more about this in a particular context. They're coming out of exile. They're brought back to the promised land. They rebuild the temple, and they're expecting sort of the full glory that it had been in the past, and for all the promises of future salvation to all be uh, all come to pass. They're all at once, and that wasn't the situation. It wasn't the same. And all the Israelites felt that. And what the Lord lets us know in the book of Zechariah is he's really telling his people, I'm not fulfilling all of this yet. It's still coming in the future. It's kind of the main idea. But, but let's, let's get some context here for the book of Zechariah. So it's a prophetic book, which we'll talk more about in a second, the role of the prophets in Israel. It's one of what's called the 12 minor prophets. Not minor because they're not important but minor because they're smaller. So there were four major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Those books are long. Well, after them are all those names of the minor prophets, those 12 books at the end of the Old Testament that are all there together. Well, Zechariah is one of those books. And in fact, it's one in the whole Old Testament, it's one of the books that is quoted most in the New Testament. So it's, it's quoted or alluded to, this book of Zechariah, around 70 times in the New Testament, which is a lot. That's a lot, especially for a slim book like, like one of the minor prophets. So let me give you an example. These are some examples just during the, uh, the gospel narrative about Jesus heading to the cross. So those days immediately preceding him going to the cross, listen to this. So the fact that he rode a donkey that's a reference to Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. The fact that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would scatter, that verse that Jesus quotes and that happens in the gospel narrative, that's a reference to Zechariah 13, 7. Jesus is driving the money changers out of the temple. You remember that? That's a reference to Zechariah 14, 21. Judas, maybe most incredible of all, Judas trading Jesus for 30 pieces of silver that's from Zechariah chapter 11, 12 through 13, giving the exact number of pieces of silver. The, the piercing of Jesus's side, 
That comes from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. All of those are just in that gospel narrative. The book of Revelation is quoting or alluding to Zechariah left and right, all over the place. In fact, so personally, uh, uh, devotionally, these days I'm reading through Revelation as well as a couple other books of the Bible, but that's helpful for me also preaching through Zechariah. So that's something that you could think about is maybe reading the book of Revelation along with what else you're reading, because what you're going to see is tons of connections between Revelation and, and the book of Zechariah. So it's quoted all over the place in the New Testament, which is such a great help as you study an Old Testament book. So this is this is a little trick. So I don't know if, if you remember this, but in school, if you had a math book, there's a good chance that some of the answers of those math problems were in the back of the book. Now for a bad student like me, it was a bummer because they weren't all back there. It was like the odds or the evens usually. And my teachers were smart enough to say, okay, the homework assignment is due the even ones, whereas the odd ones were in the back of the book. So that did not do me much good as, as a bad student who would just quickly look to the back of the book. That's a bad thing to do, by the way, children. Don't do it that way. But when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's like the answer is in the back of the book. So then all of a sudden your New Testament becomes a God-inspired commentary on the Old Testament. So you don't have to wonder, what does this verse mean? How does it apply? If it's quoted in the New Testament, you get to see how the Holy Spirit says it's applied and what it means. So with Zechariah, we have that happening and it's, it's a great help. Now, if you've read Zechariah before, you might remember it's made up of eight visions at the front end given to Zechariah by the Lord. There's these eight clear visions. You'll see the headings there in your Bible probably. And then there's a sermon in the middle of the book. It's chapter seven and nine, basically. And then it ends with two of what the Lord calls oracles. And that's chapter nine to 14. So that's kind of the way it's, it's, it's broken up. But, but let's get our bearings real quick before we jump into the first passage. Let's get our bearings about what was going on in the life of God's people when Zechariah was prophesying. We already alluded to it, but, uh, but re remember in the Old Testament, there was a split among God's people after Solomon. There was a split between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom, confusingly enough, oftentimes called Israel. So sometimes all of God's Old Testament people can be called Israel. A lot of times it's only talking about the Northern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom, usually called Judah. So you've got that split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Well, both north and south were disobedient to God. And he continued to tell them, you guys, repent. Reaffirm your trust in me. Come back to me. Be faithful the way I've been faithful to you. That's God's message all throughout. And he would say, Charlie talked about this from the end of Deuteronomy, and it's all over the Old Testament, there in 1 Samuel as well. If you don't repent, judgment is coming. That was God's message to them in the midst of their sin all throughout that Old Testament uh, history. Well, sure enough, God fulfilled his word. He brings the Assyrian army to defeat the Northern Kingdom. In 722 BC, the Northern Kingdom falls. They're scrapped, they're taken away into exile. Well, at that point, you would expect the Southern Kingdom to repent of their sins. They just saw their brothers and sisters in the North fall, according to God's word. You would think, of course, they're going to repent, but they don't. They continue on in sin, despite what the prophets are telling them. And so around 605, the Babylonians come in and start attacking Israel 
and taking away people from Judah into captivity. Daniel goes in that group of folks initially. And then Jerusalem's finally totally destroyed in 586 BC. So Northern Kingdom fell because of their sin. Southern Kingdom fell. But see, God's plan was never to desert his people. Although that's certainly what they deserve, that's not what he gives them. Listen to what the Lord had prophesied through Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back from this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God's plan was to judge his people for their sins in Judah for, for a 70 year captivity. He takes them to Babylon, but only for 70 years. And he promises when that 70 years comes up, I'm gonna come back and get you. I'm gonna bring you back to the promised land. That's exactly what he did. <clears throat> God raises up the Persian army and their leader Cyrus. And, and they come in and they rescue Israel and bring them back to the promised land. Listen, listen to, uh, to that recounted in Ezra chapter one, verse one. And that's where Ezra says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, what we just read, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. So God fulfills his promise. He works everything around in human history, raises up the Persians, and then they, through the inspiration of the Lord, bring Judah back, bring the people back to the promised land, and then have them rebuild the temple. An incredible event only happened because God made it happen. So that starts around 538 BC. Well, about 40 years later is when, uh, when Zechariah's prophetic ministry starts. So that's what's going on during the prophecy of this book. God's people have been brought back from captivity. They're in Jerusalem, so they're God's people in God's place, under God's rule. You ladies who have been going through the, the Bible study on Tuesday nights, you might remember that language. That's a good way to summarize what is God's kingdom? Well, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. They're back in the promised land. But like we said earlier, it's just not the same. Even after the temple's rebuilt, it's, it's just not all that they were hoping for. And again, it's the main message of the book of Zechariah. God's full salvation for his people wasn't going to happen right away. It was still future. In a way, it was already, but in another way, it was not yet. Well, that's, that's relevant for us, isn't it? Because that's our exact situation as Christians. The kingdom has come in the person of Christ. It's already, we're citizens of the kingdom, and it's also not yet. We're not in a perfect place. We're not in the Lord's full, unmediated presence for eternity in that perfect place. So we're in the same sort of situation that Judah is. Okay, well, with all of that in mind, hear how the book begins. Zechariah 1, 1 through 1, 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. 
Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from all your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Okay, now probably about half of the sermon is that front end, all that introductory material, so we get our bearings. But, but with the rest of our time, let's think about what we're being called to do from this opening monologue here from Zechariah. I think we're being called on to do at least four things. From this passage of scripture, you'll see them listed there in the outline. First, listen to the Bible because it's God's word. We're going to see that in verse one. Second, see your sin as a departure from God. We're going to see that in verses two through three. Third, pursue God by pursuing obedience. See that in verse four. And then finally, verses five through six, Believe that God will punish those who refuse to repent. So first, listen to the Bible because it's God's word. So once again, the book of Zechariah, it records the prophetic ministry of, of this guy, same name of, of Zechariah. We know from his genealogy, he was a member of a priestly family who returned with that initial group of exiles back into Jerusalem from, uh, from being exiled. But, but his prophetic ministry didn't start for another 40 years or so. So look at verse one. We see there Zechariah is, is called a prophet. And about half the Old Testament are these books from the prophets. Okay, so, so what is a prophet? Well, verse one tells us, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Okay, that's what a prophet is. A prophet is a person who the word of the Lord comes to. And in particular, it comes to in a supernatural way. The Lord delivers his word for his people to this person, the prophet, to take God's word to God's people. And this is our first point this morning. The first thing I think we're called to do in this passage, listen to the Bible because it's God's word. Look down at verse four. He says, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. So he's talking about the fact that Israel had not done this well. They had not regarded the prophet's words as the word of the Lord, the, the way they should. And God had been using this ministry of giving his word to a prophet. He'd been using that ministry ever since Moses. Now, in, in verse four, when he talks about the former prophets, he's probably talking about God's word through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who were telling God's people before they got conquered, who were saying, hey, repent or judgment is coming. But what God tells us in verse four is that the fathers of the people there, their forefathers, Israel's history, they didn't listen to these prophets. They should have, but, but they didn't. And the reason they should have listened is because the words of those prophets were the very words of God that he had given to them. And that's why we're supposed to listen to the prophets. It's why we're supposed to listen to scripture, right? Zechariah, he wasn't just a godly guy with some good ideas that maybe we could follow his example and learn from him. No, the, the words sitting in your lap are God's words. 
They came through Zechariah, but they're God's words. Verse 1 again, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Now, the question for us as Christians is, do I listen to the Lord when he talks to me? And we're not talking about the spirit working in you that maybe could give you a hunch about something or give you wisdom in a particular moment. That's something we pray for, but, but that's not what we're talking about here. And we're talking about the words that we absolutely know are from God, which are the words of Scripture. When God speaks in Scripture, do we listen? Do we equate it with the word of the Lord? So a couple of examples, but you can fill in the blank with all sorts of different things. So when, when you've had a sinful outburst with your kids or your spouse or, or your coworker, and you read Ephesians 4.26 that says you're not supposed to sin in anger. Okay, well, based on that word, do you repent? Do you ask God's forgiveness? Do you ask other people's forgiveness? Do you work to turn from that sin? So in that way, do you listen to the Bible because it's God's word? Or when you read James 2, 5, 15 through 16, that it talks about in the church, our responsibility to care for the practical needs of one another and to step into those needs when, when we can help provide for somebody. When there's a need in front of you, do you step into that need according to that verse? Do you listen to the Bible because it's God's word? Or when Jesus tells you in Matthew 5, 27, that, that lust is adultery in your heart, do you respond by trying to fight that sin? Do you treat the Bible as God's word? You know, nothing in scripture is a suggestion. None of it is a, hey, take it or leave it. No, scripture are God's commands for us. The, the Bible is the very word of God. So we should take it that way. And if you're a member here, pray we'd be a church that's marked by always listening to God when he speaks to us. That we would always be ready to pivot in any way if we see the word tell us to pivot. The scriptures are God's word, and that's part of what this introduction in Zechariah re reminds us of. Verse one, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So listen to the Bible because it's, it's God's word. Okay, but, but what was God's word for his people in Zechariah's day? What's his word for us here this morning? Verse two and following. The Lord was very angry with your fathers, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Okay, Zechariah is reminding them what we've been talking about. Previous generations of God's people had turned away from his word. They were disobedient. And when the prophets called them back, they didn't listen to the prophets either. They continued on in their disobedience. But the way, it's, it's interesting, the way that Zechariah characterizes that, he says that they had they had left God. They had turned from God. That's the picture here. Now we know God, God isn't talking about them literally going to a place where God wasn't. That's not what the Lord is talking about. God is everywhere. Now this is figurative language. 
What God is saying is that his people had been disobeying him, and through their disobedience, they had turned away from him. So as they were going on in unrepentant sin, that was them turning away from the Lord. Look at the middle of verse 4. And there he says, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So the story of God's people in the Old Testament is, is the story of them turning away from the Lord over and over again. So Adam and Eve, God tells them, don't eat from this tree. What do they do? They eat from that tree. Or God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you children through Sarah. God, uh, Abraham struggles to believe that promise, gets one of her servants pregnant. You think about when God brought Israel out of captivity in Egypt, they almost instantly begin worshiping a golden cow. You think about David, who goes after a woman, sleeps with her, he's not his wife, and then has her husband killed, disobeys God's word. So that's, that's the picture on and on. It goes through the time of the kings of Israel, like we saw in 1 Samuel, the, the significance there. But this is exactly what the, what the ministry of the prophets was for, was to call Israel to turn back to the Lord, to turn away from sin and turn back to God. But, but see, that's what happens when we sin. When you disobey the Lord, you're turning away from him. You're deserting him, at least momentarily. Sin is fundamentally a departure from God. And this is the second point I think we're supposed to draw from, from this passage. You should see your sin as a departure from God, as you turning your back on him. So that's a question for us is, is, do I think about it that way? Do you think about it that way? I think sometimes it's easy for us to think about our relationship or sin's relationship to God, like the relationship between us speeding and the police officer that pulls us over. So, you know, we're usually going to get punished for that. But the officer, it's not a personal thing for him or her. They don't see it as an affront on them and their relationship with you, right? You know, there's this law. You've broken the law. They'll administer justice, but they're not personally affected by it. But see, God, God's our creator, and he created us for the purpose of having a relationship with him. So when we turn from that intention and disobey him, that's a personal attack on the Lord. And, and for us as Christians, he hasn't only created us, he's also recreated us in the gospel. He sent his son to die for us, to pay for our sins, to, to win us away from a life of sin. And through that gospel, he's made us his children. The name that's used for God every single time in our passage is either Yahweh or Yahweh of hosts or Yahweh of armies. And you can always locate that name Yahweh in the Hebrew when you see Lord in all capital letters. So if you look down there and see every time God has talked about it, it's Lord, but it's all capital letters. What that's telling us is it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. You probably remember that was the personal name God had given his people. So he's reminding them, when you sin, you're turning away from me. This is a personal affront to our relationship. It's a reminder that God's people had turned away from the God who had saved them. And it's the same for us as Christians. So when we sin, that's us, at least momentarily, turning our back on our Father, running away from him. We, we should always keep our sin in that kind of personalized context. Listen to how David does this. In Psalm 51, this is after 
he'd committed adultery and had her husband murdered pretty significant ways he had sinned against other people. But listen to what he says in Psalm 51, four, David says, against you only have I sinned, talking to the Lord, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David knew every time he sinned against another person, the person he was most sinning against was the Lord. It's good for us to keep it in that personalized context. We're going to see that throughout the book of Zechariah. When Zechariah gives a list of sins in chapter 7 and 8 for the people where he says, hey, these are the things you guys really need to turn from. All those sins are interpersonal sins. They're all horizontal sins against other people. And yet, when he opens the message to these same people in verse 2 of our passage, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me says the Lord of hosts. So the Israelites, their worst offense wasn't that they were sinning against one another. It's that they were sinning against their God. It's that through those sins that they were turning away from the Lord. And that's how we should think about it too. When you sin, you're not not sinning against some abstract rule. You're sinning against a person. And you're sinning against the person who moved heaven and earth to save you and bring you to himself. So every time that I don't trust the Lord, or every time I resist loving someone, or every time I'm jealous or selfish, that's me, you can think about the prodigal son. That's me acting like the prodigal son, where I turn my back on my father in that moment and I leave. That's the way he talks about it here. That's why in verse three, the Lord has to call his people to return to him. So remember that. Let's see our sin that way. See your sin as a departure from God. Well, that's certainly the way God talks about his people's sins here in this passage. And so his message to his people through Zechariah is, return to me. Look at verse 3. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So Zechariah's message is for Israel to return to God by obeying him. That's what he means when he says, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. And this is our third point this morning. Pursue God by pursuing obedience. So so once we recognize our sin as a departure from God, the next step is easy to discern. The next step is, okay, obey God. And so in, in this section of Zechariah, he's turning the people's eyes back to Israel's past rebellion. So remember, like we just talked about, God spends the Old Testament calling his people to repent. They don't do that. That was the main message of the Old Testament prophets who Zechariah mentions here. Verse four, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. So he's saying, don't be like them. They disobeyed the Lord. They turned from him by disobeying. Don't be like them. That's why they went into exile, is what Zechariah reminds the people of. And that'd be a pretty heartbreaking message for these people, you know, to be reminded, oh yeah, our forefathers, they were exiled because of their disobedience. But but the Lord, he, he doesn't rehearse these events so the people can be sad and depressed. No, God tells us why he's bringing up Israel's past and their rebellion. Verse four, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. 
So he's, he's leveraging that sad history to call people in Zechariah's day back to the Lord. He's saying, do the opposite of your forefathers who disobeyed me, do the opposite and obey me. And, and the message for us here is the same. Pursue God by pursuing obedience. Look again at, at what it would look like practically for God's people to return to him. Verse four, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So God says his, his people had evil ways and evil deeds. And we have the same, right? In our sinful flesh, we have those things. So just listen to uh, the list of the works of the flesh we studied in Galatians 5. And just think about if, if you have these things, if you see these things crop up in your life. So sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Well, even as Christians, we're, we're still sinners, aren't we? Some of those sins, you think, oh yeah, I, I committed that sin this week. Some of those sins we'll, we'll commit today. But see, God's calling us to turn from these kinds of sins, just like he was calling out to his people through Zechariah. And if you're a Christian, you actually have the equipment necessary to turn from those sins because you have the spirit of God living inside of you. We're gonna see Zechariah talk about that in, in chapter four. He's talking about the spirit and in chapter four, verse six, he says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, a leader, early leader back there in Judah, not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So you don't have the strength in your own nature to turn from your sin, but the spirit does have that power. So we have the ability to, to turn from our sins. So, so see your sin as a departure from God and then pursue God by pursuing obedience. And as Christians, we should always have that question in mind when we're reading the word in particular. So when you're reading the word personally, ask yourself, what is God asking me to do in this passage of scripture? What is it the Lord is expecting of me from this passage? How should I apply this passage in obedience to the Lord? Because we wanna please our father. So verse four, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So pursue God by pursuing obedience. But our final point this morning will, will bolster our desire to turn from sin. The final point is believe that God will punish those who refuse to repent. It's the last thing we see here. Believe that God will punish those who refuse to repent. Look at verses five and six. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So God will punish those who refuse to repent, who refuse to turn from their sins. Why is that? Well, it starts with the fact that God hates sin. So look back up in verse two. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. So, so those evil ways and evil deeds in the middle of verse four, those things made God angry. And that's a good thing. As Christians, we love the fact that sin makes God angry because that shows us that God is holy, that he's righteous, 
that he's good. In fact, there's a direct relationship between God's anger with sin and his holiness. And the angrier he is with sin, the more we see his holiness. Listen to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. There the prophet says, talking to the Lord, he says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So see, the reason Habakkuk says God can't put up with sin forever, he can't ignore it, is because his eyes are pure. God's holy. And because he's holy, he hates evil. He's angry with sin. And and we wouldn't want it any other way. We don't want a God who sweeps sin under the rug or who pretends like nothing bad has happened or it's not a big deal. No, we want a God who, who has to deal with sin. And in fact, that's the reason Jesus came. The reason Jesus came was to die on the cross, to deal with sin, to save us. God knew he could, he could either let sinners pay for our own sins in eternal judgment. That's the kind of judgment that you deserve if you sin against an eternal God is eternal judgment. Or God could give a life to trade in, to take the penalty of our sin on him, but it had to be a perfect life. Well, that's only Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's fully God and fully man who can substitute himself in for people like us because he's fully man. But the substitution is a perfect sacrifice. That's Christ. That's why he's our only hope. But the death of Christ reminds us how much God hates sin. He hates sin enough to sacrifice his own beloved son. That's how much God hates sin. Praise the Lord for the, for the good news of the gospel. We need that Savior. Well, look at what Zechariah says, God's hatred of sin meant for the, the ancestors of his contemporary listeners. Verse 5, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So what's he talking about there? He's talking about the exile. He's saying, hey, God had prophesied to you guys. He had told you if you keep on in your sin, God's going to have to judge you for it. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, in verse 6, when God says, my words and my statutes, did they not overtake you? That looks like a reference to what Pastor Charlie referenced earlier, Deuteronomy 28. That passage that tells Israel, you'll be blessed if you obey, you'll be cursed if you disobey. God had been telling his people this message the whole time through. In the words of verse 3, God had told them, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. God had told his people that, but see, Israel called God on it. In their heart, they were doing the math, and they thought, I bet this won't happen. I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, there was an air traffic controller strike in 1980 and 81, and Ronald Reagan became president. And he told the air controllers, he said, those are the folks that make sure planes don't crash, right? Praise the Lord for air traffic controllers. Ronald Reagan said, if you guys strike, I'm going to fire you. Everybody that strikes, you've lost your job. They called him on it. They said, I don't think he's really going to do it. And he did it. And all of a sudden, all those folks that striked were out of work. That's the same kind of math that Israel did all throughout her history with the Lord. He's not really going to do this. No, he's going to end up overlooking this sin. It's not that big of a deal. We're going to be fine. He's going to leave us in the promised land. They called him on it. They called his bluff. And then God did exactly what he said he would do. That's what God always does. 
We never have to worry about God fulfilling his word. He will always do it, even if we think to the contrary. So he punished Israel for their sin, exiled them, took them out of the land. And Zechariah gives this great dichotomy here. We got at it with our New Testament reading with, with Herod saying that his words were the words of a God and not of man. And then remember, Herod dies. And then the next verse, Luke says, and the word of God increased. There's that dichotomy there. See the same type of thing. So in the beginning of verse five here in our passage, you've got your fathers, so the previous generation of disobedient Israelites that didn't think anything was gonna happen to them. And then at the beginning of verse six, you've got my words, which were God's words about judging them if they didn't repent. Okay, well, who was left standing? So you've got God's word about judgment against his people being disobedient, not thinking he's gonna do anything. Who's left standing? Not the fathers. They're the ones that are exiled. No, it's the word that's left standing. Look at the way he says it. It's so great. Verse five, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? No, they're all gone. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So his word about judgment came true. And the fathers aren't around any longer. And they end up realizing this. The end of verse six, has the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds? So has he dealt with us. God won't ignore any of his promises. He will always fulfill his word, even his word about judgment. So, so believe that God will punish those who refuse to repent. So Zechariah points them to this previous bad example of your forefathers. Look at this, guys, and learn from it. Don't sin in those ways. Repent. And see, in the New Testament, God calls us to do the exact same thing. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. This is Paul talking about Israel's rebellion after they came out of Egypt. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 10, 5. Nevertheless, with most of his people, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So he's pointing our attention back to a story of rebellious people and God fulfills his word of judgment. Now this is what Paul says. Now those things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. That means they died. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So see these, these examples throughout the Old Testament of God's people disbelieving his word about judgment, they are for our instruction. As Christians, Paul says. So keep that in mind when you read the Old Testament. When you read about God's people in the Old Testament and then see what happens to them as a result of that sin, you are supposed to leverage that for your own holiness. You're supposed to say, oh, God takes sin seriously. I should turn from my sin. That's what we're supposed to do with examples like this. Believe that God will punish those who refuse to repent. So you can see how, how that belief will be such good fuel for, for our obedience. Now, does this mean that we have to perfectly 
obey the Lord, be perfectly sinless? No. But it does mean that as you sin, as a Christian, you should run to the cross, asking for forgiveness for that sin, praying for help from the Lord that you might not, that you might turn from that sin and grow in obedience. But here's what's not an option. It's not an option to think that your sin is not a big deal. That is not an option for the Christian. It's, it's not a small thing when we sin. So members of Cornerstone, we can think that our jealousy is a small thing. In God's eyes, it's not a small thing. We can think our laziness is a small thing or our fear of man is a small thing or lust or love of money. It's not a small thing. It's sins like that that Israel got exiled for. Like verse six says, God's word of judgment overtook the fathers. There is no sin that is small enough to be safe. Not one, not a single sin that is small enough to be safe. But, but this doesn't mean we're hopeless. No, it's the complete opposite. We can acknowledge the danger of our sin for exactly what it is because we have a savior. So we can listen to the Bible and believe God's word when he says our sin is a departure from him. And then we can run to Jesus for help to pursue obedience. Believing God's word of judgment will with any doubt come to pass. But as those who have repentant faith in Christ will be safe, praise the Lord. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your clear word. We're so thankful that even though sometimes we pull punches with one another, you never pull punches with us. You give us the word that we need. Father, we're thankful that, that out of every individual in the universe, you are the only one who takes sin perfectly seriously. Father, use passages like this one. Use the preaching in this church use our daily Bible reading as individual Christians to ratchet up our understanding of how horrible sin is. We pray, Father, that you would grow our membership as individual believers, that you would grow us in understanding that all of our sins are, are personal. They're against you, and that's us turning our back on you. We don't want that, Father. So, Father, work your spirit in us to leverage your word and apply it in such a way where we run toward Christ, where we run toward obedience for our good and for your glory. We pray you'd be honored in these things, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.